The title of this morning's talk is Seeing the World Afresh. Yesterday I talked about our habitual tendency to see the world as just a collection of separate items, each compartmentalized in its own conceptual cage. Today, I'll explore ways out of this trap. But before doing that, let me review the basic points of yesterday's talk, just to remind you. In it, I argued that the most conspicuous fragment that we feel compelled to carve out of the world is the me the self, the ego, or whatever you wish to call it. And also he argued that the most powerful tool, scalpel if you wish, for doing this carving is language. I also said that science collaborates in this job. However, because of it, science tends to be so meticulous, it often has no choice but to confront the contradictions that result from this compartmentalizing. For instance, just, just one example, just briefly, when trying to see the electron as a separate item, physicists, had no choice but to confront the contradictions there and to describe it either as a particle or a wave. Description that cannot be simultaneously applied. So, in some situations an electron is a particle, in others a wave. So, while compartmentalizing of the world may be at times an expedient shortcut, it's also bound to take us away from the real. Bound to take us to a land where we may remain trapped in a world of irrealities, vulnerable to all kinds of contradictions, and to the suffering that results from that. Let me now turn to the essence of today's talk. In it, in it I'll explore how to get out of our, our habitual fractured world. One pivotal way is to learn to transcend the limitations of language. Surely we need to use word, words to communicate it, as I'm doing now. But that does not mean that our mind ought to remain confined within the literal meaning of language. If we allow 
this to happen, we would be stifling the reverberations, the mental resonances that transcend language and logic. Reverberations that more often than not are the most significant aspect of our communication, as poets know only too well. We surely transcend language when we dream, and often when we wake up, the dream begins to fade away. We struggle to remember the plot, but it's gone. Even the characters peter out. And yet, quite often, the very essence of the dream remains. Stays with us. Not as a story any longer, but as a revelation of an inner yearning that is beyond words, beyond the habitual categories. Similar case with spiritual teachings. They do, of course, have to use words. I mean, I'm, again, I'm talking here. But they do so while trying to capture the essence, an essence that dwells beyond the words. To emphasize this, in some traditions, the word for God is a no-no, never to be pronounced or written down, so much so that the only allowed spelling of it is G-D. The Buddha was also prone to remind us not to expect that a word could by itself convey the true essence of the spiritual experience. So in one of his scriptures, he took the trouble of listing 33 synonyms of the word enlightenment to illustrate the fragility of the connection between words and meaning. He was telling, as he tells us constantly, that only meditation, or the equivalent of meditation, practice, can convey the deeper meaning of our experience. And then in the Zen Buddhist tradition that comes from China and Japan, there are the koans. That's a, a name for statements that embody formal contradictions and deliberately invite us to search for understandings beyond the cage of language. They prompt us to drop not just in a particular way, not just a particular way of mapping, of compartmentalizing a set of circumstances, but also give, to give up trying to reconfigurate our mental map in order to accommodate these contradictions. They, the cons, invite us instead 
to open our mind to see things afresh just as they are at each moment period not to see the words as ingredients of a new view but as a reminder of the fragility of all constructed views. In the process, our preconceptions are toned open, creating space for the discovery of the real. <coughs> and then, as I said, there are the poets whose words will often take us beyond the words. One of them, called Chuck Stein, who lives nearby, here, loves to use poetry to poke fun of himself by deconstructing his own construction. Here's a recent piece of him. It's entitled, Ha. Now, coming out of now, self or other, ha. All there is. Two, coming out, ha. Not out anywhere. What about coming, ha. Ha, ha, ha. No, not even no, not even high. Shut up, Chuck. You're out of your depth. Okay, okay, sir. We'll stay with ha. Ha, ha, ha. Back to work now. Quite a character, Chuck. And just as a poet may use words to go beyond, go beyond words, so can a visual artist use shape and color to go beyond shape and color. Such is the case for Raquel, who's right here. She, like all significant artists, uses the visible to access the invisible. In practicing meditation, we confront similar challenges. In the end, we engage in using something as clearly tangible as the breath, for instance, to go beyond the tangible. To go beyond the separate identities we are prone to fabricate as, as me, and to get in touch instead with the deeper flow of life that is beyond description.
this morning in the instructions, I focused on a practice that's called choiceless awareness, which is central to what what we do. (coughs) Ajahn Chah, a teacher from the Thai forest tradition from Thailand, portrays this practice in the most graphic way in the following excerpt from from a talk he gave some 40 years ago. (coughs) I'll, I'll quote from him now. He said, Focus your awareness directly as if you are sitting down receiving guests who are entering into a reception room. In your reception room, there is only one chair. So the different guests that come into the room to meet you are unable to sit down because you are already sitting in that only chair available. If a visitor enters the room, you know who they are straight away. Even if two, three, or many visitors come into the room together, you instantly know who they are because they have nowhere to sit down. The visitors, of course, are the sensations, the, the thoughts, the, the things that come into your mind. You occupy the only seat available. So every single visitor who comes in it is quite obviously obvious to you. You know, they're standing up. And it's unable to stay for very long. You can observe all the visitors at your ease because they don't have anywhere to sit down. You fix your awareness on investigating the three characteristics of impermanence, suffering, and your non-self. And hold your attention on this contemplation, not sending it anywhere else. Insight on the, into the transient and satisfactory and selfless nature of all phenomena steadily grows clearer, clearer and more comprehensive. Your understanding grows more profound. Such clarity of insight leads to a peace that penetrates deep into your heart. It is the clarity and completeness of that insight into the way things are that has a purifying effect on the mind. Wisdom arising as a result of deep and crystal clear insight acts as the agent of purification. Through repeated examination and contemplation of the truth every time, your views change, change and what was one mistakenly perceived as attractive gradually loses its appeal as the truth of its unattractive nature becomes apparent. You investigate phenomena 
to see if they are really permanent or of a transient nature. At first, you f simply recite to yourself the teaching that all conditions are impermanent. But after time, you actually see the truth clearly, directly from your investigation. This is the seat where you want to receive visitors. There's nowhere else you could develop, you could go to develop insight. You must remain seated on this spot, the only chair in the room. All, as visitors enter your reception room, it's easier to observe their appearance and the way they behave because they're unable to sit down. Inevitably, you get to know all about them. In other words, you arrive at a clear and distinct understanding of the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and selfless nature of all these phenomena. And this insight has become so indisputable and firm, firm in your mind that it puts an end to any remaining uncertainty about the true nature of things. You know for certain that there is no other possible view, way of view, viewing experience. This is the realization of the Dharma at the most profound level. Ultimately, your meditation involves sustaining this knowing. True, the, I'm following up on what Ajahn Chah said. True, the visitors keep coming back. In the course of life and practice, the, the baggage of unwarranted assumptions, beliefs, and ideology that we have stored up in our mind is bound to pop up again. And when, he, when any of it pops up, we need to recognize it for what it is. Say, hello, goodbye, do it, and return to the heart of practice, which is the depth of our being. It is there in the depth of practice, not in the apparent solidity of rationality, that we find our freedom. It is like when we truly touch each other through love. In that experience, there is no sense of past and future. No explanation of what's going on. Instead, there is a momentous opening into a space that seems to abide at the core of our being. 
if, of course, it's not that this space is constantly available to us. But still, both in the case of love and in the course of practice, when this extraordinary space opens up, it suffuses our being with an incomparable sense of inner peace. And when this space opens up, we find ourselves in a place where suffering can find nowhere to anchor. Or in the words of Ajahn Chah, no chair to sit on. In other words, we find ourselves in a place where our habitual constructions can find no platform to support them. We find ourselves beyond all customary limitations. We discover that we are truly free. So let's sit for a few minutes together in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.